All right, welcome to this episode of the Matt Farrow podcast. Today, we're going to be talking with Soham. Soham, did you want to introduce yourself? Hey, guys. Uh, I'm Soham. Uh, I'm a computer science student at Purdue University. Um, I'm from India, um, and I'm in India right now, actually. Um, and I got into blockchain like a year ago uh, at the start of college, and I immediately started as a developer in the Purdue Blockchain Club, which is called Boyer Blockchain. Awesome. And that is actually how Soham and I met. So what was it that drew you kind of to Boiler Blockchain? And then what did you end up doing? Was there any cool projects that you ended up working on in Boiler Blockchain? Oh, that's a great question. So um, just before uh, starting college, I was just looking into some new technologies uh, like AI, ML, and I bumped into blockchain. Um, so I was not that interested in cryptocurrencies initially, unlike a lot of other people. Uh, who are into blockchain right now. But um, initially, blockchain to me was just a data structure um, that could be leveraged to make cool products. Um, and with uh, blockchain, I could participate in a couple of hackathons. Um, so we could go to a couple of events in San Francisco, uh, Philadelphia, and we also attended a couple of online events. Uh, just last month, I was working on this uh, data DAO, which is uh, a decentralized autonomous organization for preserving certain uh, types of data. So what I did was I created a data DAO to uh, save information about rare and dying languages so that people could train LLMs on them. Uh, it's still a work in progress, but uh, you know, just one of the cool things you can build with blockchain. That's awesome. That's really cool. So You've worked on some cool projects. I was kind of interested in sort of how your ideas about crypto have evolved over time. And maybe more specifically, your opinions on on how the technology can be used. Oh yeah, of course. So uh, as I said, initially I was not that interested in cryptocurrencies, but if, uh, eventually I started getting into the economics of uh, how cryptocurrencies work, uh, different incentive structures, um, I, I happen to read this book called Freakonomics. I don't remember the authors, but it's a pretty famous book. Um, and that book made me think of different incentive structures and how cryptocurrencies just make sense. And that's how I get, got into Bitcoin. Um, I actually read this article called What is Money Really? by, um, I think it was, uh, wait, I think we talked about it this way. Right? Was this like a Lynn Alden? Lynn Alden? I think, yeah, it was, I think it was Lynn Alden. Yeah. Uh, that, that article kind of got me into Bitcoin. Uh, and I had a maxi phase <laughs> where I was, uh, I was like, Bitcoin is the only real blockchain out there. <laughs> but yeah, the bit, uh, so eventually, uh, as I started learning more about Bitcoin, um, I was kind of, uh, I started thinking more about the politics side of it, as in, um, I I do tend to um, kind of relate with the libertarian point of view when it comes to politics. And uh, Bitcoin seemed to be a great solution to a lot of 
problems that uh, libertarians think. Uh, sorry, <laughs> like a uh, lot of problems uh, relating to government intervention and some other similar problems. Yeah. So what? So I'm curious here. We talked about how blockchain, it as a sort of distributed system, it does naturally enable like you to say act out or embody a, a libertarian philosophy. It's naturally a, a freedom centric technology. What are some of the properties of blockchain that that opened your eyes to saying, wow, you know, this is a technology that really can enable libertarianism. And then also kind of while you were first interested in it, just because of the tech, I would imagine that you, as you were working with this technology, you started to see implications and say, hey, like maybe this is an area for, you know, storing data or preserving mm -hmm. data or preserving truth. Um, was it, would you say it was accurate that as you worked with the technology more, you started to kind of see all the different ways that it could actually be used to preserve freedom. And then um, is, is that kind of what you say, like your journey with it was? Yeah, of course. So the, my perspective about the applications of this technology definitely matured. And I'm sure it is maturing uh, currently. Um, but as you, uh, as you said, Bit, uh, Bitcoin and other blockchains are very freedom centric. Um, in that they tend to maximize individual liberty. Um, since most of the blockchain applications out there get rid of middlemen and central authorities that could potentially uh, harm your freedom, I think that, that is one of the features of blockchain technologies that make sense with libertarianism. When it comes to Bitcoin, it's Bitcoin is based on one simple philosophy, and that is self-custody of value. So whatever you own, uh, you own it yourself. You don't trust a, a, trust a third party. Uh, it's, it, I think it, there's a saying that your key is your, mo your money or something like that in Bitcoin. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. so uh, self-custody is um, one of the things. So, uh, you know, you don't have to, like, it's, it kind of creates like a trustless system. Uh, and I feel the more people are aware of this, the better it will play out. No, that's brilliant. Um, I like the how you described it as like self-custody of value. And it just, it makes sense that if you have a system where people can actually own their value, they actually have custody over the value which they've provided to others, that this is going to shift the power dynamic to the individual. So I think that's brilliant. Oh, yeah. Could you talk about how this might limit maybe government control? Um, oh, yeah, of course. So um, as I already said, I'm, I'm from India. Uh, I, I was doing high school in India when, I think in 2016, uh, the government of India announced this very weird uh, thing that they said, uh, okay, by the way, just to, just to give you a context, most of the Indian economy is based on cash. So we still use currency notes, uh, the rupee notes. And uh, what happened was, I think in November 2016, uh, the Indian government announced that the 500 rupee note and the 1,000 rupee note are going to be banned uh, from 2017. So we just had two months left to get rid of all the notes of all the 500 and 1,000 rupee notes, which constituted of, uh, like a majority of 
the, the cash balances of most people. And why they did this, uh, they, it was an attempt to reduce corruption and uh, black money, in their words. But it ended up being a huge fiasco. Some people ended up dying. Uh, and um, like because to replace notes, you had to go to these banks and you could convert at most like 5,000 rupees per day. So people had to go to banks every day. People stopped working. It was chaos for two months. And what I realized at that time was that the government has so much control over you if they control the very value that you hold. Uh, and when it comes to Bitcoin and self-custody, it kind of seems like a panacea um, to all of these problems. All your hard work, all your hard-earned money, like all the value that you own, uh, own is not trusted to a third party, especially the government. Yeah, that that definitely is like, it's it's really scary to think that that kind of thing can happen. And uh -huh. and not just in, in India, but even in the United States, where we've never had, I don't think we've ever had a, the, the government seize our currency. Um, I do believe that on at least one um, occasion, the government did seize gold um, oh. from citizens. And we were... Um, it, you, it became illegal to hold gold bars in your home. You had to give them to the government, so the government could print more U.S. dollars. And this oh, yeah. has happened. happened. Yeah. I think it was before before they got off the gold standard, right? This was, yeah, this was before they yeah. got off the gold standard. Pre-1971. So yeah. pre yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, very, yeah, yeah, this is very um, interesting. <laughs> I think that that, as you said, like Bitcoin does seem to really solve a lot of those problems. I did want to kind of push back on that just a, just a little bit though. I know. Bitcoin, Bitcoin does have a limited transaction bandwidth. And I do know that a limited transaction bandwidth might inhibit the degree to which Bitcoin could be used as a transactional medium. Um, yeah. That being said, there is like Lightning Network, which is being developed. Did oh, you, yeah, that's what did I was you explain say. to me? Yeah. Um, could you explain Lightning Network a little bit and maybe your thoughts on it? Okay, so in a very uh, in very simple terms, Lightning Network is uh, you could you should see um, a Lightning Network kind of like an abacus. Um, it uh, so it's a channel between two parties and it it's kind of like a ledger over a ledger um, that counts who owes uh, like how much this person owe owe person. Person A O person B, uh, and um, after the transactions are over, uh, this channel is settled. As in, so, there's only two Bitcoin transactions uh, with all of this. So it's kind of like a, a another layer over Bitcoin. I forgot what your other question was. So how does Lightning Network work, and then also, how does it enable? how would it enable people to use Bitcoin in the future? If like the transaction capacity is very small right now, we Lightning Network would obvi obviously allow us to increase the bandwidth and allow more people to use it. Do you think this is a necessity for global adoption of Bitcoin if that was going to happen? Yeah, because uh, I think uh, right now the Bitcoin uh, transaction speeds are super slow. But uh, from what I've heard, uh, Lightning transaction speeds are even better than Visa transaction speeds. Um, 
yeah, from what I've heard, I should just uh, take this with a grain of salt. But the the channels that I was talking about, uh, the channel between two parties, this channel can uh, be between a vendor and a buyer, but at the same time, it can also be between a vendor and an application. So um, most of the applications that are being built on Bitcoin right now uh, kind of um, abstract away the very idea of Bitcoin. Like most people uh, using this these apps wouldn't even know that they are using Bitcoin. Uh, so for them, they'll just be trading in fiat. Uh, but um, it's kind of like there's a quick transaction between Bitcoin and fiat, and then a channel is open between the application and a vendor. And uh, this channel is settled after some periods of time. That, that's how most uh, Lightning applications work. That's cool. I like the idea that yeah. when crypto cryptocurrency will be operating in the background where like users won't yeah. really need to know how to use it. They'll yeah. just be using the technology. Uh -huh. um, you know, there was this, you know, I think there was this crypto is. beach. Oh, sorry, what, what were you saying? Oh, I just, I think it'd be cool if in the future, right? As you were kind of describing, people wouldn't have to know all the intricacies of how the Lightning Network works. They wouldn't have okay. to go through the pain of setting up a wallet perhaps or dealing with mm -hmm. an address or dealing with block like oh yeah all of that would be abstracted away it'll be kind of like a black box um that's what most devs are saying right now so uh, there's this there's... i think uh Sorry. i think uh, have you heard about the crypto beach uh in el salvador there's this whole town that is run by bitcoin like all the transactions over there are done using Lightning Network, uh, and uh, the whole the like all the entire economy over there is run by Bitcoin. It's very interesting. Yeah, that is very cool. I have heard about that. Yeah. And uh -huh. speaking of running entire economies by Bitcoin, do you think that um, Bitcoin and just crypto in general it might cause more free markets to emerge, markets that are less regulated, less corrupt? Could it be used um, to advance like globalism um, or globalization? Yes, for uh, for sure. I'm I'm uh, I'm very sure that crypto in general will help in um, increasing like international trade. Um, there was this interesting application that I read about um, that it's called, it's a marketplace for cloud compute which is basically, uh, you know, how AWS and Google Cloud uh, and some other, uh, some other companies, they basically sell uh, cloud compute. So that's, that's the same product, but which it's sold at different prices at different locations. So that calls for an arbitrage. Uh, and what uh, makes international transactions easy is cryptocurrency. So this application, what it does is, uh, it's still in the works, by the way, uh, but what it does is uh, it enables a marketplace for a compute buyers and compute sellers. So uh, that is a very interesting application. Uh, so a, a person who is who can buy cloud compute for cheap uh, in, let's say, Papua New Guinea can sell it to someone in America uh, and make profit off of it. Uh, so yeah, such applications are... Uh, very like very easily possible but in general uh i think um in in a couple of years we'll be seeing more 
free markets which have been enabled by crypto 100%. That's good. Um, so not all cryptocurrencies are created equal. We have cryptocurrencies like CBDCs, but then we also have cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. So Bitcoin has a different monetary policy than something like the dollar or even a digital dollar as mm -hmm. might be created. So do you want to kind of talk about the differences between something like a digital dollar and Bitcoin? What is it about the monetary policy of Bitcoin that makes it pro-freedom, quote unquote, whereas something like oh. the dollar might not necessarily um, promote freedom or the ability to stand on the ability for an individual to engage in the actions that they want to, which don't harm other people subject to inflation okay. and monetary policy. Oh yeah. Um, okay. Right. So I, I think the main difference between a digital dollar um, and a Bitcoin would be uh, inflation, right? Uh, so inflation over here is somewhat controlled by humans, uh, like inflation in dollars. However, the inflation in Bitcoin can be mathematically uh, can be mathematically calculated. So the the value that you hold right now won't be affected that much. However, geopolitical um, forces can affect the value that you hold in dollars. Um, and I think that is the major difference. Uh, yeah. So what, what does that mean? What is the monetary policy of Bitcoin? The monetary policy of Bitcoin can be explained in game theoretic terms. So there's miners out there who mine for uh, cer certain transactions that have not been in a block yet. So uh, fundamentally how a blockchain works is, I won't go too deep, but a blockchain, how a blockchain works is uh, every node can be represented. Uh, okay, so it's, it's kind of like a linked list where every node is a quote-unquote block of transactions. And a block is basically a collection of transactions. So how Bitcoin mining works is um, there are miners who uh, basically verify transactions that have not been uh, verified yet. And by verifying, they basically put it in a block in payments terms. Um, and if uh, so doing this is basically like a very brute force, brute forcey algorithm. Uh, and it is essentially uh, like mining is essentially uh, like how successful your mining would be is related to how much compute power you've used to mine it. Uh, and in return for this, you are awarded an entire Bitcoin. Um, so I think one block is mined every 10 minutes, if I'm not wrong. It is mathematically impossible to kind of uh, corrupt these transact transactions if they've already been verified. Uh, because, um, I mean, I'm not the best person to explain why, but uh, it, it is basically mathematically impossible to cheat in the system. And since uh, a lot of users, since like everyone is incentivized to be honest and incentivized to mine honestly, it kind of uh, 
you can trust the system of Bitcoin. Yeah, so it is uh, like in a very, like in layman's terms, it would be like uh, bit, like the value that you hold in Bitcoin, the monetary policy of Bitcoin is based on math, whereas the monetary policy of the dollar is based on geopolitical forces, which are greatly unpredictable. Yeah, and, and I think another point too is that even even though there are formulas that we have, say, for um, increasing or decreasing interest rates, quote unquote, or to how to um, control inflation, quote unquote, how the Fed might want to do that, these policies are arbitrary in, in, in a sense, because even though we can understand some forces and there are there is principles for governing the money supply and how it works, as you pointed out, it is what I would describe as as somewhat arbitrary. There is no clear mathematical function that governs, um, that, that, that says what we're going to do in the future. And because it's arbitrary, it's, it's somewhat random. And because it's random, um, it's, it feels like it can be somewhat haphazard. And it feels like that randomness can really harm individuals because of things like inflation. And, and for me too, like when you were talking, I was thinking about the idea of time preference. Um, I believe it was Safton um, Amos who wrote the the Bitcoin Standard, and he have, have you have you read the Bitcoin Standard? Um, I actually read half of it, so yeah, I, I know pretty much yeah. So I know the fundamentals of it, yeah. Yeah, do you remember the part about time preference? That's what I was thinking about when you were talking. Um, I I don't think I know time preference from that book. He was talking, I think, about how individuals are willing to sacrifice the present for the future when they know mm. that when they have a little bit more certainty about the future. Right. And the dollar is we have that arbitrary monetary policy, which causes scattered inflation. And if we know for a fact, if we're uncertain about the future, we might be less likely to save. And saving is bad for the economy. We need people to save. But also right. if we're unsure about the, the future or, or we, we suspect that there might be lots of inflation, that, mm -hmm. are, that um, uncertainty that we have about the future can lead to yeah. making poor decisions. And right. so it is a really unordered or chaotic um, monetary policy. So For sure. I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, sh I think I should <laughs> uh, complete that book now. <laughs> um, I started it, but yeah. For sure. Um, yeah, th that makes so much sense uh, because even the formula, uh, formulas that you're talking about that can predict uh, interest rates and whatnot are all based on approximations and history of uh, fiat currency, which is frighteningly low. You know, it's, it's just like 19, it started in 1971, right? Fiat. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. 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 I have another um, question for you, which is about this idea of financial inclusion. So right now there is this community, this cohort of people that we refer to as the unbanked. Right. Are there uh, uh, refer to as what? Communities. Um, the unbanked or, or people. Oh, the unbanked. Services. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you think blockchain cryptocurrencies can be used to 
include these people to give them financial services, countries? Oh, I, th I think so. Because, yeah, like when it comes to rural places with, uh, like, you know, lack of access to banks or, or financial institutions, um, comparing it to, like, comparing it to Bitcoin, all you need is an electronic device to access your value uh, and for transactions. Um, a good example, I think, would be, uh, I think, just after 2010, uh, there was a mass, uh, there was uh, a mass migration from uh, Syria to Europe. Uh, there were there were a lot of terrorist attacks in there, and a lot of families. What they did was they just left all their belongings and just fled the country. Uh, but some some of them kind of sold all their assets and put all their value in Bitcoin. And once they uh, reached their new settlement in Europe, they exchanged it back. So um, Bitcoin can prove to be like. Uh, good store of value for the unbanked. Like everybody can get access to banking, whether or not, uh, you know, ge geography won't matter at that time. Like when, when Bitcoin is accepted as like a standard. Yeah, I 100% agree with you on that. I think that was some good insight. Um, I do know that you have to go soon, um, but uh -huh. I want to just go ahead and thank you for stopping by. Um, oh yeah, did thank you. Have you. Any yeah, of course, of course. Did you have any closing notes? So I would like to end it with a quote by my favorite author, Ayn Rand. Um, she is uh, like she actually inspired a lot of libertarian, libertarian thought uh, in the last century, and she said that man is an end in himself and not a means to an, another end, uh, and that does. Um, resonate a lot with the philosophy of bitcoin self-custody and libertarianism so, yeah i love it thank you so um